I think you have to be what you are. Don't try to be somebody else. You have to be yourself at all times. UCLA men's basketball coach, John Wooden. Hey everyone. It's been a minute since we've posted an episode. Some illnesses and unforeseen life events have made it a bit challenging to stay on schedule lately, but the hidden opportunity in those challenges was having time to reflect on why we're doing this show and has helped to clarify how we're going to do it. I'm treating this episode as our manifesto, and we'll be weaving several distinct threads into one tapestry. We'll convey a clear understanding of what you can expect from us and the great esteem we have for you and what you bring to the table as listeners and contributors to this great conversation. We couldn't do this without each of you, from DC to LA and St. Louis, Cleveland, and everywhere in between. We're all on the same team after all, and like Coach Wooden would say, the main ingredient of stardom is the rest of the team. It's time to get those doorward thinking caps on. Let's get started. Welcome back, thinkers. I'm your host, Nate LeBlanc, and it's great to be back on the mic and with you today. I'm in the home studio in St. Louis, Missouri, going solo again because we've needed to rearrange our recording schedule a little bit. I'll get to that in a minute. As always, we're searching for better ways to live and better ways to love, examining what life has to offer in light of the untamable human spirit. There's a lot of ground to cover today, from a Wild West train ride, to a preview of our book club discussion of Simon Sinek's Start With Why, the NFL playoffs, what being on a good team looks like, the importance of living in truth, and the need for mercy, as well as giving you our revised mission statement, so bear with me. I promise, it all ties together. We're going to start with a little timeline of what's been going on. A couple weeks ago, we were all set to record an amazing conversation on creativity with Kansas City-based pediatric occupational therapist Michaela Stupps. The day before our scheduled studio time here in St. Louis, we learned that the host she was planning on staying with had COVID exposure, and in order to keep everyone safe and conduct an in-person interview, I decided to take a train out to Kansas City the next day. Now, I love trains. I always have. I had those Thomas the Tank Engine wooden trains as a kid and made all kinds of intricate track layouts for hours at a time, and the family went to train museums and on miniature train rides in Griffith Park in Los Angeles, so I thought it would be great to take a train ride again, and at the same time I could get some work done. I was going through my notes on Start With Why and preparing that discussion at the Lee's Summit station stop when I heard five or six very loud pops. I was facing the opposite direction when they happened, so I didn't see anything, but being startled, I slunk down in my seat and stayed there for about 20 or so seconds until the train started to move again. Now, if you've never taken the train before, the smaller station stops are really quick. A couple people get off, a couple more get on, and we're on our way in under a minute. Just before we started to move again, another man said, Where are they going? Why are they bringing firecrackers on the train? So assuming that they were firecrackers, I sat upright and looked into the aisle. The man who spoke about the firecrackers was walking up and down a few rows, checking things out, and then went back to his seat. 
about four or five minutes later, the conductor walked through and stopping in the middle, asked us to clear the car. He stood at the center and had us move towards the ends into the next car. He didn't want anybody to cross the midline. It was almost like he wanted to keep us from seeing something. So I did as I was asked and took my seat in the adjacent car, curious about what had just happened. We stopped at the next station along the route, which was in Independence, and we sat there for two long hours. As we waited, police in bulletproof vests came onto the train and talked to the passengers, followed by detectives wearing their badges slung around their necks and cowboy hats. It really was like a scene out of some western. Because my seat was facing the opposite direction and my decision to stay out of sight, I really had nothing to contribute other than hearing the shots and I was allowed to leave, either on a bus to Kansas City or to be picked up in Independence. My host in Kansas City came to Independence to get me, and when I finally disembarked the train, I saw the aftermath of what had happened. There were several marked police cars, and several unmarked cars where the detectives were standing and talking to each other. There was at least one ambulance on hand. There was a news crew interviewing one of the passengers where I heard a more detailed account of the events. It turned out that someone was shot in that car a mere three or four rows behind where I was sitting. This was murder in cold blood. Now, I've been up close and personal with death quite a few times in my life. There's the death that happens in our families and the funerals of friends and loved ones. But there was also the time I had to lead authorities through canyons on the outskirts of a large Boy Scout camp to human remains. As a hospital orderly, I've given chest compressions in the OR to a patient who didn't make it, and witnessed a woman's blood pressure drop post-op while she cried, Dios mio, Dios mio, my God, my God, right before she died. As a medical student, I've done a complete anatomical dissection and witnessed several autopsies of suspected drug overdoses or murder victims during an elective at the St. Louis City Medical Examiner's Office. Seeing the results of and being involved in death is nothing new to me. However, this was the first time I've been present when the murder, which I'm simply defining as the unlawful premeditated killing of one human being by another, took place. And it really does hit different. Without getting too deep into the weeds, experiencing life being taken forced me to re-examine the social context in which we find ourselves. Now, this isn't an exhaustive moral argument by any means. It's just the results of my thought process after that train ride. But, very simply, I came to the conclusion that any action, judged on its own, can have one of three outcomes for the person committing the action. It can be a gain, a loss, or something inconsequential. And we're talking really dull stuff here, like walking around the block, going left or going right. So for the purposes of this podcast, we're only going to be talking about gains and losses. In a similar vein, it can have those three outcomes for a person who is affected by the action. And again, 
that's usually going to be either a gain or a loss. So under this very simple framework, a murder, as I've defined it, is obviously a loss for the person who lost their life. And in general, I think we can say that the murderer felt they had something to gain by their action. Whether that is real or supposed, physically tangible or psychological. One person's gain at another's loss or expense does not allow us to progress. And I'd actually argue that such an action causes two losses. In this case of a clear murder, the loss of life of the murdered person and the loss of freedom and rights of the murderer after a just and fair trial. Maybe even the loss of their life. And even if the shooter is never caught and they get away with it, are they ever really free of the consequences? It's an action and mark that affects them forever moving forward, no matter what supposed benefit they got from their decision to kill. It's a lose-lose proposition, and I'd argue any interaction in which one freely decides to take from or use another person is a lose-lose. What I'm most interested in, though, is the opposite kind of interaction, the win-win, where an action taken by one person is a gain for everyone affected by that action, including themselves. And in order to win, we need to first know ourselves, know what we need, and know how to be the people we feel the call to be. That starts with knowing our purpose, and it was exactly what I was reviewing on the train when the shots were fired. I have mixed feelings on Simon Sinek's Start With Why. He does make some excellent points, and the way he presents them has given me lots of cause to think and reflect. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks, but without getting into the whole book right now, the gist of it is that the best leaders, whether they lead and inspire social movements, human achievements, or giant companies, are the ones who inspire with their personal mission, their why. In fact, Sinek defines this why in his book as, quote, your purpose, your cause, or belief. It's the reason a person gets out of bed in the morning, and the reason why somebody should care about what they bring to the world. He says the best leaders know how to communicate their why. They reach others with that why, and they rally them together to pursue it. And the results are the changes, achievements, and organizations we see today. The groups and institutions that falter, he argues, are the ones that forget or lose their why, and are instead driven only by what they do, forgetting their real purpose. And it happens, a lot, to most of us, most of the time. At the end of the book, Simon invites us all to consider our why, and those are the pages I was reviewing at the Lee's Summit stop. Frankly, losing my why was what happened to me in the midst of bouncing around and trying to pay the bills as I left medical school and trying to figure out my life. I started just going through the motions, trying to survive the changes, and wasn't fully allowing my why to guide my actions. When this happens, Sinek says we need to look back on the events that have shaped us. Why did I want to be a physician? 
And why did I desire to specialize in pediatrics and make a career in child protection? If you heard our last episode, it's because of what happened in my childhood. Because I went through it and withdrew and fought alone. Only to hit rock bottom and realize I needed to be open and learn from and be cared for by others. Why did I like my job at the summer camp? At Disney? At the hospital? What didn't I like about those things? What appeals to me about working for this company? Why do I want to open a pizzeria? Why do I want to get married and have a family one day? What other moments in my life stick out as being formative and joyful? What brings me peace and purpose? And then it hit me. What I care most about is serving others and serving alongside others. It's being their teammate and supporting them in the lows and celebrating with them in the highs. It's about having someone there with me when I need support or to celebrate my accomplishments and the things that bring me joy and knowing that I'm cherished and valued for who I am. It's about mentorship and learning from others. It's about having others to rest and relax with, secure in knowing that we're working together for something greater, but that chill time is good for the soul. Distilling this into one sentence, my why is that everyone should have a teammate. These poor people on the train needed a teammate. The shooter needed a real teammate to love them in the midst of their frustration and show them a better way. The victim needed a teammate to seek them out and offer any assistance if possible, and maybe to warn them of someone or something that might put them in danger. I was fortunate to have teammates to rely on that day and afterward, to offer their support and pick up some slack while I took a bit of time to reflect. My buddy Pete even gave me a mini table tennis set, which I am going to whip him on in a mostly friendly game next time he's in town. You better watch out. You see, teams have always been a part of my life, and I feel an incredible pull to learning about and fostering team dynamics. Despite my withdrawal tendencies, I was blessed to be on a lot of great teams, and when I was contributing to them and spending time with my teammates, everything got brighter. I was on a team that won our little league. I won a spelling bee with the help of my father and the healthy competition from my younger brother who was nipping at my heels. My dad and I would later coach a golf team that won our league. And I worked five summers for what became the premier Boy Scout camp in California. I supported teams of doctors and nurses that successfully completed hundreds, if not thousands, of surgeries. And yes, even watching the Kings win two Stanley Cups in three years, I felt like I was a part of their team, fighting for our city. Those moments were so joyful. They were pure and I learned to value them and to seek them, to strive for excellence with others, and to seek those win-win arrangements. There were also some not-so-great teams that I was a part of where I learned the win-win-lose-lose framework. Those were the times when the leadership or other members of the team were focused on something other than what was best for all of us. There was the scout camp director whose priority was something other than the growth and experience of the boys we served. He was let go after one dismal season. 
Sometimes I was the one who was the bad teammate. There were the teams I was entrusted to put together that fell flat because I tried too hard to accomplish one task and forgot about curating a culture where everyone was taken care of. There were the friendships where I was too prideful that went sour in disagreement. Or conversely, the ones where I gave too much or disregarded my own needs, then in desperation to restore my peace, broke a bond. And sometimes they suffered from both problems. Those were the team experiences where my mistakes have taught me important lessons and where I seek to improve. Then there were the teams I was fortunate not to be a part of. For example, one of my former Little League coaches asked me to throw my tryout the next year so that he could be sure to draft me on his team. I must have only been eight or nine and really had very little idea about what was happening. It seemed funny, but I didn't really quite get it. My father stood in and was a great teammate and said no and told me to get out there and do my best. Even in doing my best, I lost a ball in the sun at that tryout and it hit me in the face. The only time that's ever happened. But after all the coaches had their draft, I was picked by the team that won it all. It all comes back to the gain-loss dynamic I mentioned earlier. Teams that have a shared purpose that work together for the greater good, and who take care of and allow their people to be their true selves win. Teams that don't lose. If I threw that tryout, would it have changed the outcome of the season? I don't know. I was a good pitcher and a good hitter, but I wasn't phenomenal by any means. There were players better than me in each of those areas on my team, and they might have won it all regardless. If I had been picked by the other team, though, perhaps I could have been one of their stars, but it wouldn't have been enough to take a middle-of-the-pack team to a championship. That team might have won an extra game or two by a run here or there, but I would have still lost. And not just the season, but my integrity as a player. In that alternate reality, it's still a lose-lose in the end. Now we're in a position to examine the first quote from John Wooden up at the top. Again, that's, I think you have to be what you are. Don't try to be somebody else. You have to be yourself at all times. Only when we're being ourselves can we be on the right team with the right role. If we try to be someone other than who we are drawn to be or called to be, we will never achieve what we're capable of. Wooden was a genius, not just in basketball, but in life. His career winning percentage of 804, or just over 80%, is ranked fifth all-time for NCAA men's basketball coaches. His UCLA Bruins won 10 national championships in the span of 12 years, from 1963 to 1975. Four of those teams won undefeated, a perfect 30-0. They even had an incredible 88 straight game winning streak over parts of four seasons. In fact, Wooden's record during that 10 titles in 12 year stretch was 344 wins and 22 losses, for a winning percentage just barely under 94%. Now, anyone who's been following college football recently knows that dynasties like the Alabama Crimson Tide can be built, and they seem to get the best players every year. And Wooden was in that position too. 
He coached NBA greats like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Bill Walton, Gail Goodrich, Jamal Wilkes, Henry Bibby, and many more. But in college, the players get to choose who they want to play for. And all these players wanted to play for Wooden. They recognized that he would be able to help them achieve their goals in basketball and in life, and were willing to participate in his system in order to learn from the Wizard of Westwood. That meant starting every season learning how to put their socks on properly so players wouldn't get blisters, and buying into all the rest of John's philosophies that promoted working together. So who was this man? Where did he come from? He was born on a farm in Hall, Indiana in 1910, and would rise early every morning to help his father milk the cows before heading to school. Then, when he finished his homework and his other chores, he and his brothers would play basketball with a homemade ball and a tomato basket nailed to the wood in the barn. He would go on to lead his high school to the state championship and play guard for Purdue, where he was named an All-American three straight years and team captain as a junior. He graduated from Purdue with his degree in English and went on to teaching and coaching in high school before serving as a naval officer during World War II. After the war, he returned to teaching and pursued his master's in English, coaching basketball on the side at Indiana State Teachers College, where the team's performance earned an invitation to play in a national tournament in Kansas City. Wooden and his team declined the invitation because black players were not allowed. The following year, he was hired by UCLA, and the rest was history. Wooden clearly had deeply instilled values that motivated his decisions to work hard in school and sports, to be a model officer in the Navy, to pursue his higher education, and to deeply care for his players, from big things like their fair treatment to smaller things like how they put on their socks. UCLA saw it, and they gave him a chance. It wasn't perfect right away. His teams made the NCAA tournament just three times in his first 14 years as coach at UCLA before they made it to their first Final Four. It took time to build and for the more skilled players to notice and give him a chance. It took time for the methods and message to be refined. But after years and years of learning what it means to work together and lead a group with a unified purpose, Wooden and the Bruins of UCLA would make their mark on the world in a big way. What Coach Wooden cared most deeply about was the character and growth of others. That was his why, and he was able to utilize his why in both teaching and in basketball to help others achieve greatness, and what resulted from Coach living his purpose is the pinnacle of team achievement. In time, he devised the perfect method of communicating his vision that he called the Pyramid of Success. Go ahead and check it out. All of his values ingrained in creating win-win situations for others are there. Now, originally, I was going to use another quote attributed to Wooden at the top of the episode. And that quote was, If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with the team. Because this episode is all about teamwork and it fits really nicely. But first I did a little digging because, hey, I don't just believe anything from the internet or the media right away anymore. And to the best of my knowledge, after my research, I cannot confirm Wooden actually said this. Other quotes, easy. Piece of cake. But not this one. In fact, it bears a striking similarity to the maxim, 
If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together, which is a traditional African proverb. This experience prompted another experiment as I was writing today's show. Let's suppose we want to accuse Wooden of cultural appropriation. We could make that assumption, right? It's not a giant leap to say he changed a couple words and didn't attribute it from the data we have in front of us. But before we start accusing, let's look at the facts and consider the things that we don't know. Here is a man who cared deeply about his players, who declined an invitation to play in a national tournament because black players weren't allowed. Does he seem like the kind of man that would willingly use wisdom cherished and honed by others? Then there's no definitive proof Wooden actually said this. So it's possible that someone, somewhere, perhaps unknowingly or mistakenly, got or did something wrong. Maybe he did say it and give credit, but that part didn't make it online because of selective editing. Either way, would we have limited information and draw harsh conclusions and make damning accusations? We could hurt the coach's legacy. Taking these conclusions to their limit, one could say very matter-of-factly, John Wooden stole an African proverb. And then what does that say about his pyramid of success that features honesty as one of the building blocks near the base? If we remove that block by saying John Wooden wasn't an honest man, we begin to tear his legacy and UCLA's win-win success down into a lose-lose. The pyramid falls. I know that thought experiment is an extreme example, but that's the purpose of them. To expose the flaws in supposed logic and guide us to be more understanding. I think this experiment highlights two important points. First, as we've seen, the danger in making assumptions is that we may come to conclusions that are not truthful. It's not good for me or another person, and is on track to become a lose-lose proposition. Second, it underscores the importance of mercy. Mercy is simply defined as compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. Now, perhaps Wooden did say this once. Pretty unlikely based on my research, but it's possible. What's more likely, though, is someone blended a few things together and attributed it to the coach because it fits his why. Was it purposely deceitful? I have no idea. But thinking about it rationally and recognizing that sometimes humans make mistakes provides an opportunity to be merciful and to grow without tearing down another person for making that mistake. Making assumptions and not having mercy tears down both the person and the pyramid. It's a lose-lose. Mercy that is just, that provides opportunities for growth and preserves the truth, is a win-win. And it's necessary on a team. No one is perfect and we all make mistakes. I've made my fair share of them. Some small that were easy to move on from, and some that were very serious and had real consequences. If we are so harsh that we always condemn another for a mistake, we're not real teammates. Our team suffers. Conversely, if we remove consequences from mistakes, we're not a real teammate either. Sometimes it's best for the team to part ways with a member, and, somewhat counterintuitively, this is really what's best for the former member too. This is an application of justice, 
and we've talked about that several times before. The former member can now seek who they're meant to be on a team they can help and a team who can help them. Now everyone can be set up for a win-win. Justice and mercy, when applied properly and that seeks the good, is a necessary part of team success. Okay, so we have a few threads here. The aftermath of my time on the train, my why of being a part of a team, the importance of being ourselves, desiring the best for others, and justice and mercy. I have one more quick thread to add. The second of Wooden's quotes up at the top was, the main ingredient of stardom is the rest of the team. And I chose this one for a reason too. Maybe you've been keeping up with the NFL playoffs going on right now. I'm recording this right before the conference championship weekend, so maybe things will look a little bit different when this airs. But for now, the two teams I'm going to talk about are still in it. With my Los Angeles roots, I'm a Rams fan. Kurt Warner is my guy, and his story is one of the greatest sports stories ever told. But now I'm here in Missouri, which is part of the Chiefs' kingdom since the Rams left St. Louis. The Chiefs have been the best team in football over the last four seasons, and if they win the Super Bowl this year, we're going to be talking about them as a dynasty. Now imagine the Chiefs if every player was star quarterback Patrick Mahomes, who has taken them to four AFC Championship games in four years as a starter. Mahomes couldn't block TJ Watt or Aaron Donald effectively like six foot four, 315 pound lineman Nick Allegretti. He couldn't coolly kick a 49 yard field goal as time expires to tie the Bills like Harrison Butker. Those aren't parts of Mahomes' game, and he relies on the skills of others just like Butker relies on Mahomes to put him in field goal range with the clock winding down. On the NFC side, the Rams went out and traded for Matthew Stafford for exactly what he is bringing to the team. An experienced and physically gifted quarterback who isn't afraid to stand tough in the pocket and make a big throw. Here's some trivia for you. Guess who was the quarterback throwing to the receivers with the first and second most yards in a season? It's Matthew Stafford, a quarterback who set those records with only five winning records in 13 professional seasons. Before Stafford was traded to the Rams, he had never even won a playoff game. He was 0-3 in the playoff starts after 12 years with the Detroit Lions, who were often criticized for not having enough talent around Stafford to win big games. Many analysts and ashamedly me included, had doubts about Stafford, even with the talent and coaching he would have in Los Angeles, and those doubts weren't put to rest until he finally won a playoff game. Now, he has a chance to take the Rams to the Super Bowl. These are two cases of players elevating their teams and their teams elevating the players. It's we, not me, as the Rams are fond of saying. It is necessary that we are all different. Being all the same doesn't work, in sports and in the rest of life. It's our differences that are the keys to our combined strength. Okay, so what does all of that have to do with this podcast? Like Wooden with English and basketball, Doorward Thinking is a vehicle helping me and Team Doorward live our why. Our collective why is the flourishing and growth of the human person. 
and we believe in a team-centric, two-pronged approach. First, we believe and uphold a person's dignity and their sovereignty to make their own decisions to achieve their best life. In other words, people need to be themselves at all times. Second, we believe that a person can do this best with others. To put it another way, the main ingredient of stardom is the rest of the team. Professionally, this means working with others towards the same goals. And socially, this means pursuing the growth of their family unit. The resulting harmony between these two paves the way for the flourishing of a human person. This show is all about sharing our journey in living this mission and sharing the insight we gain in discussions amongst ourselves and interviews with experts in their field who are actively living their why and share our team why. And the slogans we've been trying out at the top of the show as we fine-tune all of this stuff aren't just random words. Open new doors and better ways to live and better ways to love are the things we believe in and what we want to offer you as your teammates. They are how we want to engage with you and how we can do our part as you seek your best life. Not only are we all on the same team, but you bring thoughts, perspectives, experiences, and skills that are unique to the team. For instance, I have my life experiences, my faith, my education in psychology and the sciences, and a few other hobbies and interests. They differ from my coworkers, and because of those differences, we are able to share and to help each other. Even then, there are only a few of us. We don't know everything or haven't experienced it all. But together with you, our listeners, we make up a community that really does know a thing or two. The things you bring to the table are vital parts of how we're looking to grow and the win-wins we are searching for. We can't go through it all alone. If we are pushed or push ourselves so far to the brink and find ourselves clawing for scraps, if our dignity and well-being is pushed aside for someone or something else, society falls. The world that good people are working to build gets torn down. We can't go through it all alone. It doesn't work. Trust me, I've tried it. We need to share our uniqueness, and we need what others bring to synergistically rise together. We need to approach life with justice and mercy in our interactions. We need to be concerned for everyone's good, and we need to pursue it with purpose. I believe, and this whole team believes, that a better world is within reach if we work together. Only if our actions are rooted in respect for our neighbor and if we work diligently to seek arrangements where everyone involved benefits. And to that end, we believe that everyone needs a team, a squad, a crew, whatever word you want to use, to back them up in this mission. That's my why, and it's why I'm able to host this podcast and give it my all. Because I believe in what we're doing. So what can you expect moving forward? Borrowing from Coach Wooden again, if you don't have the time to do it right, when will you have the time to do it over? Now that I've matured, I recognize that it's not all about winning. Winning is the result of being on the team and living well and doing things the right way. And that's what we're going to do on this show. 
We're not going to rush. We're not going to try to cap our conversations on time. We're not going to let the wheel pressure us. We're going to have real conversations where we ask the tough questions and get to the heart of the matter. We're going to go down the rabbit hole and tease out the minute details of real substance. We're going to try to keep our weekly schedule as we transition to having our own studio space for all of the benefits it affords. As the events of the last couple of weeks have highlighted, coordinating everyone in an uncertain world is tough. There are a lot of moving parts that need to work just so in order to do this show the right way. But doing it right is better than doing it poorly and missing the mark. I'm really excited for this growth and for the episodes we're able to put together with this mindset both in the immediate and distant future. I'm inviting each of you listeners to join me, Team Doorward, and our guests in our shared purpose. I believe most of you, if not all of you, want better ways to live and better ways to love and be loved. We're here as your teammates. Thank you for listening and for sharing your insights with us. Together, we can learn and grow and produce new and exciting win-win scenarios that will give us the tools and materials to live a fulfilling life. To be present and share joy with our families, friends, and neighbors, and to achieve great things for the benefit of everyone. If we sacrifice our values or choose a path that is demeaning to ourselves or to others, no matter what benefit we end up with, we lose. We can only win if we're being true to ourselves as we work together. Please, share this message with your teammates in life and invite them to join us as we think and grow. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so you don't miss out on our weekly win-wins for the antics, the laughter, and the heart-to-hearts being on this team provides. Next week, we'll finally be airing my conversation with Michaela about the benefits of creativity. You won't want to miss it. She has some great insight. For more Doorward Thinking content from the whole team, check out our blog at doorward.com slash doorwardthinking. Be sure to follow Doorward on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for the latest news and a few surprises as we grow and live our purpose in the world. If you want to talk about how we can be teammates, go ahead and please reach out. You can reach me via email at nate at doorward.com or Nathan LeBlanc on LinkedIn. Till next time, here's reminding you to listen to the coach and be yourself at all times. As for this show, We've got our purpose and we're building our team. Let's find those win-win scenarios and get back to living.